grab your Bibles and head on over to Matthew chapter 7. We are going to be walking through a section this morning, verses 7 to 12, where Jesus' instructions meet us in the midst of very real points of struggle or concern. And so you this morning may be in the midst of a very real point of struggle or concern. And his words this morning may be exactly what you need for and in this moment. You may this morning not necessarily be in a moment of struggle and concern. And so his words for you are, are, are perhaps preparatory for those moments that you will have points of struggle or Concern and, and really, in many ways, this morning's text ends up being part two or part three, if you count how we walked through the Lord's Prayer, part two or three of the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus is specifically dealing with and talking about commanding you and I to pray and to pray fervently. And so this morning's text, in many ways, is the logical question that comes out of all of the instructions that we've gotten went yeah, that we have received and that he has given us really through most of chapter 6. And so I want to just briefly review those with you and kind of set the stage for where we go this morning cuz Jesus is going to give very explicit commands for you and I to follow and I believe that they are it's it's the next step if we take his words through chapter 6 as he intended them to be taken. And so as we'll get on the screen here in summary of the Lord's Prayer, we looked at six different ways the Lord's Prayer gets broken down. It's a model of prayer. It's not wrong to say the Lord's Prayer as a unit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's not wrong to say that, but I think the, the prayer serves much more as a model for how we approach prayer, not necessarily something we just recite without much thought or concern about what the words are. So the first part is that prayer expresses worship for who God is. Hallowed be thy name. Let your name be seen as glorious. Let me understand you as who and for who you are. Prayer secondly expresses submission before God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Expresses dependence on God. Give us this day our daily bread. It expresses repentance for sin and Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that's the second part then of number five. It expresses the need for strength from God to forgive those who have wronged us. And it expresses the need from strength, for strength from God to fight for holiness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thereafter, Jesus began talking about treasure. A couple weeks ago, Kevin walked us through that passage in chapter 6. And the big idea there was don't store up treasure here on earth because moths are going to come and eat it. Rust is going to destroy it. There is a natural breakdown that happens in our world. If this is all you plan and live for, you will be sorely disappointed. Rather, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. Okay? We're going to store up treasure in heaven. So then... 
Jesus, what happens about the actual daily needs that I have? He tells us there in chapter 6, give us this day our daily bread, but don't store up for yourself treasure on earth, rather store up for yourself treasure on and in heaven. Okay, so what about the daily needs that I have is the question he turns to next. And we looked at that passage last week. Do not be anxious for what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear because your heavenly Father knows you need those things and he will give those things to you. And I gave you two specific ways in which I believe the Lord provides those things to us. The one is through the ability to work. God gives us the ability to work. And in doing so, it's then our responsibility to use the resources financially we get, the the paycheck, to use that money in wise ways that follow his instructions so that we can be prepared ahead of time for when there might be a daily need. You know you're going to have to put gas in the tank. You know you're going to have to go to the grocery store. That's a daily need, quite frankly. Well, your ability to work and the paycheck you receive, if used wisely, is certainly a way the Lord provides. But then God also provides daily needs through His church. And there's opportunities and there have been times in my life, and I know there have been times in your lives, or maybe a need comes and it's unexpected. You know you were planning for gas in the tank. You know you were planning for food on the table, but you weren't planning for that. Well, God provides through his people. He provides for us in real tangible ways. And this morning, as we look at verses 7 to 12, I think part of the question that gets answered there is, okay, God, when's the provision going to come? Okay, God, when is... And he meets us in the midst of concerns and struggles. And this morning, as I said in the very beginning, you might be in that moment. These might be moments of a concern and a struggle. Perhaps it's not, and it's more preparatory. And either way... What God, through the words of Jesus, wants us to grab this morning is a glimpse of his goodness, is a glimpse of who he is. This past week I was at the beach with my family and we had just about as perfect of beach weather as you could get. It was great. It was high 80s, low 90s, almost not a cloud in the sky. Not great for pale people who burn, like myself. Um, but have you seen Tobin running around? He, he is like four shades darker because he doesn't burn at all. He just gets dark. And it's interesting when the kids run into the ocean, which they're far more interested in doing this year than they have been the last several years, the wave comes. And it's almost as if they forget about the wave when they first go in. And we watched Tucker do this time and time again where he just ran head first towards the wave. And then then like the wave started coming and he just does an about face. And then he is running as fast as he can in the other direction. And oftentimes if Carrie or I were standing right there, he's running to us. And he wants to grab a leg. Or he wants to grab a hand. Or he's putting his arms up because he wants to be held And 
in the midst of those moments of uncertainty in this little four-year-old boy's life when the wave looks like it's a tsunami coming to tackle him and throw him under, he wants nothing more than the safety of dad or the safety of mom. And that's going to come by wrapping himself around our leg or getting a hand or being lifted up. And in really every way, our passage this morning, I think, does that for us. It puts and orients our focus back to where the safety is. And so if we find ourselves either in the midst of seeing the wave coming or knowing that eventually it's going to come, we know exactly where to turn. We know exactly where the safety is. And I think that's what Jesus gives us in verses 7 to 12 of Matthew 7 this morning. So before we go any further, let's pray, and then we'll read the text, and we'll hop in and try to make some sense out of it together. God in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We do so in freedom. We do so without a single worry that what we do here in this room would be shut down, and that's something that not everybody enjoys on the Lord's day. And God, we thank you for the opportunity here to worship. God, as we turn our focus and attention to your word this morning, I pray that you would speak clearly to us through it. God, help us to make sense of what it is that Jesus has said. God, help us to understand your goodness, that either while we're in the midst of a struggle right now, or quite frankly, we, we know that some point one's coming, the, the next wave comes, that you want us, and you want our focus to be oriented on you where safety is. And so God, like my little four-year-old who would do an about-face in the midst of a wave and run back to me. God, this morning, would you help us to run back to you? I'm going to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read verses 7 to 12, and then we'll begin stepping through them to aim to make some sense out of them. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, And it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Quick way to just summarize where we are headed this morning. We are going to be looking at God's goodness towards us. God is faithfully good towards us. 
God is lovingly good towards us, and God is good gift giving. He's a good gift giver. And verse 12 actually then gives us a command as to how we are to turn and act in relationship with others because of how God has treated us. And so it's in verses 7 and 8 that we begin to focus on God's goodness and that he is faithfully good. Jesus commands us, the words ask, the word seek, the word knock, they're all verbs of command. He's telling you and I to do something. We are to ask and it will be given. We are to seek because we'll find. We will and are commanded to knock and the door will be opened for us. I think one way that we could see God's faithful goodness here is that when we pray, we can have confidence that the answers will come. God is faithfully good, so pray and know that the answers will come. There are three promises given in this passage. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. God is faithfully good and promises to answer. He is faithfully good, and so you and I are commanded to pray. And in faith, know that answers will come. How many of you raise your hands if you've ever lost your keys? Maybe your wallet, something important? I'm not sure there's many other feelings I dislike more. I just don't like not knowing where that is. And so what do you begin to do? You begin to look through everything and look everywhere and try to retrace every one of your steps. And was I here? Was I there? Did I have it then? Did I, and it can just kind of drive you crazy until you find it. But in many ways, that could give us just a helpful way of thinking about asking and seeking and knocking. There's an urgency that we search for lost keys or a lost wallet, I think Jesus is telling us here, there should be an urgency to our prayers. And God is faithfully good. And so we pray and know that answers will come. I really appreciated what one scholar had to say in regards to these promises. And he wrote, the point is not that human persistence wins out in the end. So Jesus has, in the beginning of chapter 6 of Matthew, told us you don't have to pray with the right words in the right way at the right time to get God's attention. No, the unbelievers do that. They believe that if we have the right formula set at the right time of day and spoken in the right way or with the right body position, that somehow we've done something to garner the attention of God who will now pay attention to us. So Jesus is not in commanding us to ask, seek, and knock, telling us that our persistence is going to win. Consistently throughout every one of his pieces of instruction regarding prayer, He has placed this in the context of a relationship. Don't pray like the unbelievers. 
who think that they need a lot of words and they need to have multiplied sayings and all of these things. No, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. And so the point here is that human pers- is not that human persistence wins out in the end, but that the heavenly Father who loves his children will certainly answer their prayers. Ask, seek, and knock. Pray and know that answers will come. Quite frankly, this is what we've asked you to do in regards to Grace Kids 2020. And this is really in large part why there are three steps to this plan. Is that we want to ask and we want to seek and we want to knock. And we want to do so in faith that God will give us the answers that we need. We want to do so ready and willing to follow the answers he gives us. Trying to model these things even as a church. I think we even put in the books, and if you don't have a Grace Kids 2020 book, they're out on the foyer table. We're in the midst of a a three-year process of trying to grow our budget a few steps at a time to where we might be able to add a, a staff member in 2020. And we wrote specifically in there, look, if, if this is of God, we've got to say yes. There's only one choice at that point. But this, if this is not of God, we've got to say no. And when the elders presented that to you and we put the books together and Dwayne and I had a lot of fun in his factory that morning and everything, it was just... A way to say, hey, we need your help in discerning if this is of God or not. Collectively, we need to ask, seek, and knock. And we're going to do so by taking some steps along the way as it makes good sense to do. But we're going to do so, quite frankly, fairly slowly. Because we want to be asking, we want to be seeking, we want to be knocking, and we believe that God is going to give us the answer. He's promised to do so. God is faithfully good. And so pray and know that answers will come. And I think one of the ways that we see God's goodness in the midst of struggles and concerns is in the moments when we're not actually sure how to pray. I'm not sure you've been there before. I have. I know several of you have. What you're facing can seem insurmountable, and you're just not quite sure what to pray for. God's faithful goodness towards us actually even meets us in those moments as well. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When you and I find ourselves in the midst of those moments where we're not sure how to pray, 
maybe we're not sure if we can pray. The overwhelming feeling in that moment is just one of weakness. God, the Holy Spirit, is very engaged in those moments. Interceding for us before the Father. God's faithfully good. So pray and know that answers will come. And in verses 9 and 10, Jesus then further explains God's goodness and he gives us a comparison to think about. And he does so comparing the goodness of earthly fathers to the goodness of the heavenly father. And so we not only see that God is faithfully good, we see that God is lovingly good. And in verses 9 and 10, we get a glimpse of that. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, would give him a serpent? God is lovingly good, and what he gives us, the answers that he gives us, will never be dangerous, and they will never be worthless. The answers that God gives us will never be dangerous and or never be worthless, because God is lovingly good. And we have here then in verse 11, fathers given as a picture. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? The idea of a stone is, quite frankly, something that's worthless when it's bread that's needed. Here, maybe in about an hour, we're going to go and eat. Those of us that have kids will be ready to eat. They will probably be displaying most of those signs of their readiness to eat on the ride home. We're not going to give them something worthless to eat. And their need for nourishment, we don't give them something that doesn't meet the need. And that's the first picture that Jesus gives us. If you need bread, you're not getting a stone. You're not getting something that's worthless. But God's not going to give us things that are dangerous either. If he asks for a fish, who would give him a serpent? Because good fathers don't do that. Good fathers aren't going to give worthless or dangerous gifts to their children. Now as I read and prepped for this, some speculate that maybe... The type of fish Jesus is referring to might have looked like a snake. I think maybe of like an eel, perhaps. And, and so there could have been some confusion there. I, I'm not so certain how specific that's intended to be. We know that Jesus calls the Pharisees sand vipers. He has some pretty strong words for them later in the book of Matthew. And he calls them vipers. So maybe that's the snake he has in mind. If if that's the case, then we're certainly talking about something that poses a very imminent threat of danger. If you're talking about a viper as opposed to a fish, Jesus is telling us that God 
and his gifts, because of his love, gives us things that are not worthless and that are not dangerous. It's interesting, the Apostle James, or the half-brother of Jesus, James, who was an elder in the church in Jerusalem, talked a little bit about our receiving from God in the book that he wrote. And he asked this question, there's actually several questions in that text, but what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He's talking to a church that can't seem to get along all the time, and they're quarreling, and there's some fighting going on, and he goes a step further to shine some light on the issue. You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. So what's causing quarrels and fights? You You desire some things, you're jealous of some things, you covet and cannot obtain, you fight and then quarrel. And he gives this as the solution, or really maybe perhaps the reason for the problem. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And that's really where then this passage this morning becomes then part two of the Lord's Prayer. Part two of, and really in response to what it is that we have been looking at over the last several weeks together. And part of the Lord's Prayer is one of submission. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Or what we find ourselves praying for? Is it aligned with and for the glory of God? Or is it for us? I'm not always sure personally how to answer that question. But I think it's perhaps the one we need to keep before us. Do I want this because I'm desirous and perhaps I have the money or don't to go and buy it, but I want it and so I'm going to buy it? Or do I want this for reasons that aren't because I'm desirous or jealous or those things? God's gifts to us are not worthless and they're not dangerous. They are what we need when we need them, and he gives them to us because he's a good father. And thirdly, Jesus tells us about God as a good gift giver. Not only is God faithfully good and lovingly good, he's also a good gift giver, and he gives good gifts. And so the command there, the implication there, is to pray and know that his answers... That may be yes, might be a no, it could be a wait. His answers are also good. Back to James in chapter 1, we learn that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That God is a good gift giver. He gives good gifts and he gives perfect gifts. My understanding of those two distinctions there is that his gifts are good. They are what they what we need and they are perfect in the sense that they are timely. 
We get them when we need them. And what we get is what we need because he's a good gift giver. Paul in Romans 8, 28, a few verses after we learn the Holy Spirit is interceding for us when we're not sure what to say or how to pray, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I would submit to you, though, that how we define the word good is of utmost importance. If we know that every good gift, the Father gives good gifts, the Father gives perfect gifts, and that all things work together for good, we're not told that all things are good. We're told that God is is using all things for good. How we define that word matters a great deal. Think about this. My kids, if they desire to have ice cream for dinner, as a good parent should say no. Now, Maybe as a fun parent, I'd say yes occasionally. But as a good parent, as a matter of, of day in and day out, if their desire was for ice cream every night for dinner, I'm not a good dad if I just say yes every time they ask that. But think about that from their perspective. What are they more than likely to do? Well, if my kids are like your kids or your kids are like my kids, we're probably going to hear about it. And there's probably going to be some whining and there might be some feet thundering on the floor a little bit. And there's going to be some attitude that creeps up because they have been told no. And they didn't want to be told no. They wanted to be told yes because they had defined goodness in their minds as ice cream for dinner. And dad stood in the way of that. So whose definition of good actually carries the weight, well, it's what's best for them. And how we define good in this passage is incredibly important. Because God sometimes says no to us. Because it's what's best for us. But it doesn't feel like it's what's best in the moment. I remember getting some of those no's from churches that Carrie and I had been talking to almost five and a half, five years ago, those no's stung a little bit. They were exhausting. And yet they were what was best for us. It was what was good for us. Maybe it didn't feel good in the moment. And it was by faith that we continued to try to put our eyes on him and what he was doing, believing that this no that doesn't feel good is actually for our good. And so we continue to just trust. Because he's a good gift giver. And his answers are also good. And to verse 11, Jesus again gives us the picture of heavenly fathers. And the argument he poses here is just one of lesser to the greater. If heaven or earth, earthly fathers who are evil just interpret their guys make mistakes, sinful, the contrast there is the heavenly father is not. So if you 
who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more, there's the contrasting language, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of Him? I think Jesus is wanting to, to, to really dial into the hearts of the fathers in this moment because He wants some pictures and some, some metaphors to click and to connect. And so it's as if He's saying, alright dads, I want you to think about your kids being hungry. They're coming to you and it's dinner time and, 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 and they're, they're looking for you and they're wondering, has the bread been made and, and, and were we able to buy flour at the market and has mom been able to put the oil there and, and has, has it been baked? Did you get wood for the fire? And we're, and, okay, dad, we're, we're ready. We're hungry. And, and Jesus is saying, you guys know how to do that. You know how to provide those things for your kids. When they need some protein in their diet and they need some strength for the ability to have nourishment, to carry on and have energy, you know, you know how to give them fish. You're not trying to substitute fish for something that may be dangerous because you know how to give them what they need, when they need it, and you know what's good for them. And your Heavenly Father is no different. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need he knows when you need it, and he's good, and he's a good gift giver. And so we learn that God is faithfully good, and that he is lovingly good, and he is good gift giving. But then in verse 12, we are commanded to be good to others. And I'll be honest, we're not real sure, nobody's real sure where to put verse 12. Quite frankly, it probably could stand all on itself. And we know verse 12 is the golden rule. And oftentimes it does stand alone on itself. But I wanted to have that be a part of this morning because I do think there's some logical implications that come out of it when we then hear of the Father's goodness to us and hear then his command of how we are to interact with others. And the word so that leads off verse 12 is, could be translated, the word therefore, just a way of saying in summary of everything that has just been said, Jesus says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And so we learn that God is faithfully good. We learn that he is lovingly good. We learn that he is good gift giving. And then we are commanded to go and be good to others. And it's interesting. If you, if you do just a, just a real surface level survey of the major world religions that exist. You're going to find some variation of what we would call the golden rule in all of them. But there's one distinct difference between what Jesus says here and all of the other quote-unquote golden rules that exist. And the difference is this. Jesus gives this command as a positive one, meaning you and I are commanded to actually do something. All the others that exist are framed in a negative way. So let me try to walk you through that to understand some of the differences. The major world religions that all have a golden rule component to them, they would say something to the effect of, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. 
the implication there is certainly if you want others to be nice, be nice to them. But there's also an implication there that I just don't have to interact with others. I can just kind of keep to myself. I can be my own person, can ignore everybody around me, and that's good. It fulfills that command. And Jesus recasts what we understand as the golden rule. In summary of all of what the Old Testament provides as instructions to tell us, no, you go be proactive in being good to others. Whatever you wish others would do to you, you go and do to them. I think in some ways, we could summarize Jesus' command by saying, you take the first step. Now, there's a natural desire in us to want good from others. Perhaps we react a little bit more when we find ourselves mistreated by others. When I'm cut off on the highway traveling back from the beach, I, I react a little bit differently in that moment than I do in other moments. So I've somehow in my mind been mistreated. And so there's frustration there. There's a natural desire for us to want people to treat us with respect. People to treat us with kindness. People to treat us in a way that, that, is, that is honoring we get frustrated when we feel mistreated. We get frustrated when we feel slighted. We get frustrated when we feel misunderstood. And here Jesus is saying, you go take the first step. You be the one that takes the initiative to be kind. You be the one that takes the initiative to understand. You be the one that takes the initiative to be generous or giving or whatever it might be because God's faithfully good to us God is lovingly good to us he's a good gift giver to us and because of who he is to us and what we have received from him as he's taken the first step towards us we now are commanded to take the first step towards others whatever you wish others would do to you do also to them. Jesus wants us to be proactive. Jesus wants us to model the Heavenly Father in our behavior to others. He's commanding us to take the first step, to take who God is towards us and demonstrate that to others. He's telling us to let our light shine so that those who would see us might give glory to the Father who is in heaven. God's goodness, goodness to us is in his faithfulness, in his love, in the good gifts that he gives us. And you and I are commanded to turn and demonstrate that to others. And we're promised that answers will come. And so ask and seek and knock. Every one of those three commands is met with the promise that an answer will come. 
And we're told that his answers will not be dangerous. They will not be worthless. They're actually good. They're what we need. And as God acts towards us out of who he is, who we have time and time again through the end of chapter 5, through now the middle of chapter 7, learned, he's a loving father. You and I are called to take the first step in acting that way to others. This is who God is. He's faithful. He's loving. And he's good. And we're called to be that to others. So do we share the gospel with our actions? With our words? Both. As a church, we're trying to do this. Individually, I know I need some work in this. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. A good, good father who's faithful and loving and gives good gifts. God, would you, would you help us to run to you in the midst of the wave? Help us to ask and seek and knock. God, help us to know that the answers will come and they will not be dangerous or worthless and they will be for our good. God, and I pray that you would equally help us to be this way to others. God, would you be gracious to us this week and reveal where we've not been kind to others. We've not been loving to others. God, would you be gracious to us this week and reveal to us where we've, we've questioned your faithfulness and your love for us. God, and I pray that you would help us to run back to you because you're a good, good father and you love us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.